Back in college, I was a midfielder for the University of Miami's women's soccer team. I don't play anymore, but I'm still passionate about the sport. In fact, many of the lessons I share in my chief well-being officer role are rooted from my college soccer experience. When it comes to well-being in the workplace, I think there's a lot we can learn from sports about resilience, teamwork, and purpose. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I got into um, soccer and basketball. So I was five years old, and you know my mom loves to tell this story, but the first three soccer games I ever played in, I scored 27 goals. I'm here with Abby Wambach. Abby is a two-time Olympic gold medalist a FIFA World Cup champion, and the highest all-time international goal scorer for male and female soccer players. Abby is also an advocate and author of a best-selling book and the co-founder of Wolfpack Endeavor, an organization which focuses on leadership development for women in the workplace. Yeah, so I, I'll go back to the very beginning. I come from a big family. I'm the youngest of seven. And um, all of my brothers and sisters from the time I was born were playing sports. So I was the kid that was getting toted from um, this soccer game to that basketball game to that baseball game. And um, that was just like my my early childhood memories. It was just like being on my mom's hip. I did get left at a few playgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> this is not to fault my parents. I was just one of those kids that um, was just always getting into trouble. I got into um, soccer and basketball at a very young age. So I was five years old. And, you know, my mom loves to tell this story. But the first three soccer games I ever played in, I scored 27 goals. And, you know, I was pretty, I was, I was feeling myself, I think. <laughs> I'm like five years old. And I think from the very beginning, I was just out to prove my worthiness through my athletic achievements. Here in Cleveland cheering for one more goal. The ball in. Header! That's a goal! Abby Wambach, what a great I remember walking off the field that, those days early on and my mom saying, Abby, you know, why don't you pass the ball more? And, um... I hadn't really learned the lessons of humility yet, and I just, matter of fact, said to her, well, I don't understand what the big problem is. You know, if the whole idea and the, and the point of, of soccer is to score more goals than the other team, and I have the ability to be able to do that, I don't see what the big problem is. And so my mom kind of had a mental note, okay, we're gonna work on her humility a little bit here, but, um, you know, I was just a pretty confident little kid. Attacking area. Left there, quick shot, Wombat scores! I literally won the lottery by getting a chance at winning um, gold medals. Even to play on the women's national team was, was a total blessing. So I got lucky. I got like super lucky that I was able to match up my abilities with um, my passions and with the trends and forces of the world. Because I think that, you know, if I was born 50 years ago, my life would look very different. I've had a, you know, I've had a beautiful life. I, I, I played at the University of Florida and um, got a chance to play professional soccer 
early on uh, when I left when I left college, and um, and then you know I I got a chance to play on the women's national team alongside Mia Hamm, which was life changing. After all their years of competition, we'll get back to that as the U.S. attacking here. Here's Wambach opportunity. U.S. goes up one nil in her first start. Abby Wambach has hit the back of the net here in the seventh minute. I mean, I think everybody knows who Mia Hamm is, right? <laughs> Here's Hamm, maybe sets the fourth back pass from a tight angle. Yeah, Mia Hamm, her second of the day. Mia was really um, a force for the driver of women's sports, just people understanding that it even existed, you know? When I was 16 years old, this is a 96, the Atlanta Olympics was in the U.S. and um, and our team won gold. And before then, I had never seen the women's team play on television. So because of that tournament and because they won, it like it did something to me. It changed me. And Mia was the face of that team, and everybody knew who she was. So um, I am proud, not just because I won, but because I stayed in it for so long. I did it for 30 years. And by the way, they weren't all great years, you know? Like, I suffered a lot. I had injuries, and um, it took me a while to fall in love with the game because I didn't really know what it was going to truly give back to me. We, being society, all know you or you're synonymous with, with winning. I mean, that's that's who we know you to be. But mm. you talked about many, many failures and suffering and whether it was the loss of the game or... Well, I think that the word failure has to be reclaimed. Mm -hmm. I think our whole lives, we're trying to avoid it like the plague. And, um, and, and every single person on the planet has failed. Every single successful person on the planet has failed and made something of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think back to the times of my life that I'm most proud of. All the successes that I ever had playing, all the medals, all the championships, all the, all the, the awards, um, they were directly related to recent failures that had happened. Recent things that I had to over, overcome. Rodriguez. I have some unique failures of my life. I, I know this sounds super weird, but um, I broke my leg in 2008. Five days before we got on a plane to go to the Olympics in, in China. Because Wambach has not gotten up from that collision. This is one of the challenges that you have in playing a friendly just before leaving for a major tournament. You've got to take the risk. Though that was an accident, I very much um, input that into my brain, into my spirit as a failure. I had spent the whole of that, that year training. I was the fittest that I had ever been. Um, I was so excited about this idea, the possibility of representing my country again and winning another gold medal. Um, and, and so when I think about that time, I had to get really honest with myself in the moment of the game. And in the moment of the game, when I broke my leg, I lost myself. 
I, what my my teammates would call, I, I turned red. Mombach is just using her strength, trying to penetrate straight through there, trying to get a shot off. But a nice job by Andrea Rosa to get her body in front of Abby Wong. Um, I was angry. We were playing against a, a really difficult Brazilian team. The referee, in my opinion at the time, wasn't taking care <laughs> of the players because this was the last game. You know, she wasn't calling fouls yeah. like I thought she should have. So I went into this tackle a little bit recklessly. Right there. And as she was following through, whether it's an ankle or shin or knee, certainly something on her, her lower body, but can't speculate at this point. Well, again, Abby Wambach playing in her 127th national team game. Andrea Rosa just saw she's up and she's limping it off. But Wambach, uh, that's been one of the storylines for the United States. And so that's on me, right? Like, I could have very easily chalked that up as, oh, you know what? Stuff happens. This is sports. This is part of the game. Um, but that wasn't it. Everybody knows what it feels like to fail. You know, you get embarrassed and you have that pit in your stomach and you don't want to share it with anybody. And turning failure into um, an opportunity is a mindset shift. I was 16 years old. I was playing on the youth 16 na national team. And our women's national team was in residency um, at Chula Vista, the Olympic training center. And um, we got a chance to tour their locker room. I was one of those weird kids that went around and I touched every single one of the cleats there. I was not offended by dirt or, or germs. Um, and it was like every locker room you've ever walked into, it smelled a little bit weird and um, it was a little bit messy. But what was most um, shocking to me is there was this little picture right next to the door all the players would, would, would see leaving um, that locker room before training every single day. And the picture wasn't of them winning a championship. It wasn't of this like positive thing. The picture in fact was of the previous year's Norwegian national team celebrating the win over the, the United States, knocking the US out of the 95 World Cup. And at 16 years old, I thought, what is that? I had never seen anything. I had never, I never understood that kind of failure to be celebrated or honored, right? Maybe not, they're not celebrating it, they're right. honoring it. And, um, and I thought, oh, oh, that's what they do here. They don't do failure like other people do failure. And that picture has stayed with me because that was the culture. You know, when I stepped into the national team, um, failure was inevitable. Every single day, we all were failing, but we didn't have to be okay with it. It, it is a mindset shift and it is something that can be trained and learned. I am a specific, like I'm a, an example of how that's possible. And even now, you know, weird failures of my life through parenting, um, you know, sitting and taking moral inventory with my wife every single night, I find out that I've got to apologize like the next day, you know, and when is the last time you ever apologize to your kid? Mm -hmm. Or when is the last time your parent actually ever apologized to you? It's like this thing that doesn't happen. Like we can't admit as parents that we've made a mistake because then that shows fallibility and then maybe our children might feel less safe and that's just such BS. Like there's nothing more false that that I've learned than that. Failure is something to turn towards. Yeah, I love that. Failure is something to turn towards. Mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna quote you on that. Self-care and in recovery and kind of taking care of ourselves, you've talked about it as, you know, it 
it was a lot easier for you when you were on a team and that was something that you all did together. Mm-hmm. No longer being in that team environment. What does that look like for you? Just because it's, you know, I think it's the thing that we all sacrifice, right? We give so much of ourselves yeah. to everybody else. Well, first of all, I think that people really get the notion wrong of this whole concept of work-life balance. <laughs> And the reason why I know this is because I spent, um, you know, 30 years doing this job of playing soccer consistently on a daily basis, and I made it my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a big reason why I was able to find so much success at it. Um, I think it's life, yep. right? Because hopefully you're doing something that is good. Hopefully you're doing something that you enjoy. Hopefully you're doing something that is making a difference in the world. Um, and I learned this lesson actually pretty interestingly, uh, shortly after I retired, I, you know, my body was really, I had put my body through the ringer. I wasn't one of those athletes that was, um, kind to my body. Towards the end of my career, this whole idea of regeneration and science kind of really kind of got into all of us and the new technologies uh, and modern medicines allowed um, me to to truly brutalize my body. So I needed to take some time off. Um, And so I I didn't really do anything physical for about 18 months. Mm. You could probably imagine I got a little bit bigger, (laughs) which was not great on, on the good old ego. I have a healthy dose of body dysmorphia because, you know, when you're a pro athlete, I just assume my body should look like a pro athlete's body, right? After those 18 months, I was like, all right, I got to get back into this. I got to, you know, I have to be healthy. Uh, And I started running. Don't you think like I'm like this Olympian who's out trying to like run marathons and like break records? Like, no, I'm slow. And I. But you're out there doing it. (laughs) Yeah. But here's the thing I hate every step of it (laughs) i really really do and your honesty (laughs) but truly you know every single day i'd come home and i was baffled i was really baffled by this idea that i could be a former olympian who hated Mm -hmm. this activity that i was doing so i started to branch out trying to find different different exercises different things that i was into and and every single time i'd come home and i just I just kind of didn't feel like I thought I should feel. For instance, two nights ago, I laid in bed with my wife during our moral inventory talk and I was like, why is this so difficult? Why is life so hard? Why can't I have just figured this out? I am almost 40 years old and I'm an accomplished, successful person. I know a lot of stuff, but I'm also, every once in a while, I'll just get real fed up with all of the stuff that I know and I just don't want to do it anymore and I just want to eat unhealthy and I just want to not have to work out and I just want to be. And my wife just said to me, she's like, well, you don't have your teammates. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, what do you expect? And I was like, oh, that makes sense. I don't know why I was so dumb that I never thought of this before. The truth is suffering shared is less painful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is just like real truth. And um, when you're doing sprints, like I have vowed never to do another sprint again, (laughs) but here I am doing some sprints with some friends because I learned that 
I need to have people around me, especially when it's around a subject or a topic that I know I struggle to be motivated to do. So I've had to like create a, a pack of a, a new team of my own that, um, that holds me up, that makes me feel stronger, that holds me accountable. So talk to me about Wolfpack and this whole concept of Wolfpack. I know it was born, I think, out of this famous commencement speech of yours. To each of the 619 badass women of the Barnard graduating class. Well, the Barnard speech was... um, was an exercise in figuring out what it was I knew to be true. Doesn't it feel like the second you figure anything out in life, it ends and you're forced to start all over again? And um, the success of that speech um, made it clear that what it was I knew to be true resonated with people. And what I knew to be true was kind of an important thing that, People, women need need to understand, need to know. I was getting this ESPN Icon Award. I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm an icon. (laughs) (laughs) We know it. (laughs) No. Um, And and this is at the end of my career. I just retired, and I just found myself on stage standing next to Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning. And I just felt like, wow, here we are. We women, we finally made it. I'm standing next to Kobe and Peyton, like two of the most iconic athletes that have ever played sports period and I'm in this category right and all three of us turned to walk off stage and a different feeling started to rise up inside of me and I thought oh all three of us are walking into three very different retirements Mm. my biggest concern was how the hell I was going to pay my mortgage Mm. this is a true story so I laid in bed that night and, and, and truthfully, like being on the women's national team, I fancied myself. I was, I was getting paid more than any other female soccer player in the world, right? Um, our team, our women's national team is the most paid women's sports team in the world. So we were at the top of the top, right, in the sports world. But what women were getting paid was so much less than what the men were getting paid. And it wasn't that we weren't getting popular um, moments when when we would have World Cups or, or Olympics. So I laid in bed that night uh, after the ESPYs and I was like, something has to change because I believed from the time that I was five years old that I was badass. And I never stopped believing it until I was hit with the reality that the world doesn't think so yet. From that point on, I have been on kind of a mission to make sure that Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe don't have that same experience that I did when they retire, and that women are seen um, with more equal eyes from everyone on the planet. How is it going? So the Barnard speech, I got an email one day from the president. She asked me to be the commencement speak- speaker, and um, and I I said yes, but I was nervous because I have actually yet to graduate from college. So <laughs> let's put that aside for a second. I was like, what what could I actually bring to these kids? Right, like they've done it, they've graduated. Um, 
and, and I really wanted to be good. I'm an athlete. I'm a competitor. I actually wanted it to be the best, um, commencement speech that ever was. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's how I went about writing it. (laughs) Truly. I know that sounds silly. (laughs) The Barnard commencement speech was literally me writing down what made the women's national team special, right? What made a bunch of women together be able to win and be able to win in the way that made people want to watch them. I went through a terrifying transition recently when I retired from soccer. Kobe, Peyton, and I, we made the same sacrifices. We shed the same amount of blood, sweat, and tears. We'd left it all on the field for decades with the same ferocity, talent, and commitment. But our retirements wouldn't be the same at all. There's a lot that goes into the, the concepts and the philosophy behind Wolfpack, but but the totality of it, and I'll kind of sum it up real simply. It hit me that I'd spent most of my time during my career the same way I'd spent my time on that SB stage, just feeling grateful. When we talk about what the pay gap costs us, let's be clear, it costs us our very lives. There's pieces to the whole puzzle that make the engine real work, right? And, and um, the most important piece of that puzzle is by doing it together. In 1995, around the year of your birth, wolves, yes, weird. Wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park after being absent for 70 years. In those years, the number of deer had skyrocketed because they were unchallenged, alone at the top of the food chain. They grazed away and reduced the vegetation so much that the riverbanks were eroding. Once the wolves arrived, they thinned out the deer through hunting. But more significantly, their presence changed the behavior of the deer. The animal ecosystem regenerated. But that wasn't all. The rivers actually changed as well. The plant regeneration stabilized the riverbanks so they stopped collapsing. The river steadied, all because of the wolves' presence. See what happened here? The wolves, who were feared as a threat to the system, turned out to be its salvation. Barnard women, are y'all picking up what I'm laying down here? I talked about, um, you know, being grateful and demanding what you deserve. I talked about demanding the ball. Barnard College is uh, women only. So um, a lot of what my experience was really resonated with these women. You know, finding your pack, finding your people. I think that that's probably the overarching most symbolic um, theme that I, I have to keep reminding people of. You know, the whole point down here is to do stuff together. And the only reason I was able to win championships or even score as many goals as I did um, or even win individual awards is because of my teammates. I never scored a goal, not a single one without the help or the pass of a teammate. So the idea of championing each other, um, you know, women are pitted against each other from the beginning of time and we have to actually stop doing this in order for all of us women to get ahead 
Um, so demand the ball, lead from the bench, making failure fuel. Leading from the bench is, is a really interesting one because in 2015, um, I was I was put on the bench during the World Cup, my last World Cup for Team USA, and everything I needed to learn about leadership was sitting right there mm. for me on the bench, and I didn't know it. I didn't know that this was an opportunity. Um, too often, I think people take a benching and they they are not able to actually work through it and understand that leadership is still happening while you're sitting there on the bench, right? And we all know what it's like to feel benched. We all know what it's like to be left off the promotion or left off the project or, you know, dare I say, uh, breastfeeding at home while you're on maternity leave, watching your colleagues get ahead. Um, there's all kinds of benchings. And look, it's it's okay to be disappointed by by the benching, but what is not okay is to miss your opportunity to lead from that bench. Wolfpack, wherever you're put, lead from there. Rule number three. When you step inside of the, the bubble of the women's national team, there are sets of rules and expectations that I didn't even really know existed until I sat down to write this Barnard speech. All of us felt like we were each individually some of the best in the world, rightfully so. Yeah. I was doing this event a couple months ago with Mia Hamm, and um, I had kind of offhandedly said, well, you know, I wasn't like the fastest player. And she immediately shut me down and she was like, no, 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 don't do that. Because Abby, where your weaknesses lie is right where my strengths butt up to it and actually allows us to facilitate this idea and, and truly move this team forward in this beautiful way. So your weaknesses are just as important as, as your strengths because it allows me to step in. And I think that that's a very, um, it's like a high level way of leadership. The first generations of our women's national team were full of women who would not accept anything but best. Um, you'd get on the field, you'd play your hardest, you would you would play as hard as you could, crushing each other, and then you'd walk off the field and be friends, right? So they developed this culture, and I don't know, I just I couldn't be more proud to be a part mm. of the system that is what we know to be the women's national team now. Because I know I had a I had a part in developing it. I know that we had to put every generation has to put their new spin on it. Uh, and watching them go and and grow, you know, I I think about the women who started it. So yeah, all of those women who came <laughs> before me, those are the women who who truly deserve the the honors and the awards and the trophies. I think drawing a line back from the time that I was five years old, scoring all those goals to my advocacy now, I think that a big reason why, by, why people do love watching the women's national team is because we've been railing against the rules that we were taught. I mean, if you think about it, my mom was trying to put me into a little girl's box. And though I think she was trying to teach me humility and humble pie lessons, I think that the lessons here is that I don't think we have to be, um, I don't think that we have to, especially when I'm, I'm five, I'm, I'm five years old and I'm pretty good at something. I should be celebrating that. And, and, and especially as a little girl, 
whom I was playing against little boys, you know, I was on a co-ed team. It wasn't like I was playing against other little girls. Like I was really good. And I think that we have to, from the time that we're born, know that there are messages about what it means to be a girl and also, by the way, what it means to be a boy. And we have to fight against that and make sure that the messages that you teach yourself and the lessons that you want to learn are about you. And they're not about what society is throwing at you. So um, I've kind of been on a mission ever since I retired and the commencement speech and Wolfpack of going around and trying to like embed myself inside the corporate structures to facilitate um, not just leadership programming, but like to actually facilitate belief systems around getting the right people at the tables where decisions are made. But, you know, I think that all of my teammates in different ways inspired me. The way that I see some of them raising their children now, retired from the game, the way that I see some of them interacting with their their professional life and trying to create new platforms for themselves. It's really, really amazing to see um, women who, because in, in, for the whole of my life, you know, women's soccer, it was, it was still something you could make a little bit of money doing it for the early parts of my life. You know, the Mia Hams, the, that generation, they didn't, they basically did it for free mm. so that I could do it to make a little bit of money. And then I did it to make a little bit of money so that Alex Morgan can make a little bit more money and Megan Rapino could make a little bit more money and more money. And, and so I, I look at some of the women who came before me the Michelle Akers, the Julie Foudy's, the Christine Lilly's, the April Heinrichs, like women who really put women's soccer on the map and they did it for nothing. Yeah. They did it because they had this belief that there was a more true and beautiful world that they could envision. As you leave here today and every day going forward, don't just ask yourself, what do I want to do? Ask yourself, who do I want to be? Because the most important thing I've learned is that what you do will never define you. Who you are always will. And who you are, Barnard women, are the wolves. And when you get women who, who create something like that, and then you get other women who want to back that up and you get more women who want to back that up generation after generation. What you have is the, the current team that you see. What you have is Megan Rapino unapologetically showcasing not just her talent on the field, but also her personality off the field. And that is because so many women came before her to give her the platform. Because truthfully, four years ago when I was playing, we won the World Cup in 15, the world wasn't ready. I'm so grateful Abby Wambach could be with us today. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series or maybe a story you would like to share, 
please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. Be well.